global levels of unhappiness are on the rise. Only a third of employees are engaged at work, and that's not because of the rise of the pandemic, and it's certainly not going to be fixed by return to the office. So, why are employees unhappy? Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Welcome back to The Thinking Leader. We have a wonderful guest with us today. Vibhas Ratanji is a senior practice expert with Gallup and a globally recognized expert on leadership. Vibhas, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Bryce. Uh, thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, there's so many things I want to talk about. You have been involved in, in some really interesting research lately about the future of work, about employee engagement, about how attitudes at the workplace are changing both to the workplace and how work is done. What what are you seeing in, in, in the results of your studies about how employee engagement is changing in this kind of, I'm not going to say post-COVID world because we're still very much in the COVID world, but in this this phase of our, our brave new world such as it is? You know, unfortunately, uh, the news is that employee engagement isn't changing. And when I say that, I mean it's staying extremely low. Yeah. <laughs> so if, you, if you've been tracking employee engagement for a fairly long time, and you know, roughly we've seen in the US, for instance, about a third of employees are what we call engaged. So they're emotionally engaged, they're attached, they're committed to the workplace and so on. So as we look at the, the trend of employee engagement over a number of years, the number hasn't really significantly changed. changed. If anything, it's actually trending downwards after the pandemic. And what, what's interesting is that we did see a slight uptick during the pandemic, rightfully so. A lot of organizations spend a lot of time just in the middle of the pandemic talking about how they cared about the employee, investing in their well-being and so on. But reality is set in pretty, pretty soon and you can see a declining trend. So about a third in the US and I'd say globally, because we do this survey in, in uh, more than 150 countries, the, the number there is roughly about two in 10. So it's as far as engagement is concerned, it's a pretty dismal state of affairs. Uh, overall, and it really needs a lot of focus uh, through concerted efforts from leaders and managers. It's quite shocking, isn't it, really? When you think and realize that the companies that have high levels of engagement have high return on investment, have high profit, because your people engaging make your business better and more effective. So it's really dis disheartening to see these trending downward figures rather than upwards, when the reality is that going up is going to see your profits go up. So why is it you think, Vibas, that leaders and executives are struggling to engage their people? Why are people becoming more disengaged rather than actively engaged? Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the shift that's happening in terms of hybrid working as well. But that's only the last few years, right? This is something that's been going on for a fairly long time. So we did a, a massive study to understand what what creates this variance in engagement? Why do we see in some places this fantastic engagement, in some places not as much? So we looked at all kinds of factors. 
you looked at uh, length of service, you looked at whether you're in the headquarters or whether you're in a, in a branch location, gender, all kinds of things. There's only one thing that stood out, which is quite interesting, that about 70% of the variance in engagement has got to do with a manager. So essentially, mm. the manager creates the biggest difference. Uh, we wrote a book uh, a while ago. Uh, uh, it was called First Break All the Rules. Uh, and this is where we talked about engagement. And it's it's a New York Times bestsellers. I'd, I'd say one of the best all-time bestsellers in terms of management thinking. And uh, there we talked about the manager and the importance of the manager. Our research told us then that the manager is critical. Uh, look at the trend and engagement. Nothing's really changed. So we, we wrote another book um, uh, a year ago, and it's called uh, It's the Manager. Uh, essentially, <laughs> it's the manager, people. stupid. We don't sell enough of those cards. And yeah. uh, Matt, the book it was a massive success as well. Uh, but, you know, organizations that Gallup has been working with and organizations who do take this extremely seriously, they have close to 70% of their employees engaged. But th there's a categorization there. So there's the engaged, mm -hmm. there's the not engaged, and then there's the actively disengaged. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's interesting. Somebody wrote an article a while ago uh, based on our research and they characterized the actively disengaged as cave dwellers, where cave stood for constantly against virtually everything. Everything. <laughs> so you kind of think about that. Uh, there, there's that category. I love the, that. The big one is in the middle. You know, it's, uh, and, and I remember uh, they call them road warriors, R-O-A-D where ROAD stands for retired on active duty, uh, yeah. not engaged, which are, now that's the key one. You're hearing a lot about quiet is quitting. Is this the quiet quitting? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's, is this that's the quiet exactly quitting? right, Bryce. Yeah. yeah. So if you really okay, look at that quiet quitters, that's essentially what it is. It's like you're walking into work, you're doing what's expected. Uh, and we I think that number in the U.S. is about 50%. So if you were to think about quiet quitters, it's about one wow. in two uh, quiet quitters in the wow. U.S., now, Mark, as you mentioned the impact on performance, mm -hmm. it's almost like that quiet quitter, that 50% is almost, there's a lot of inertia there. It's just not, yeah. organizations are moving performance because of that. Uh, in fact, our estimates say that uh, overall, in terms of disengagement costs, the global economy about $7 trillion, which is about 11% of the GDP of the, of the world. So if you think about the economic consequences. I can absolutely believe that. Yeah, I mean, you look at well, you look at, at at some of these large corporations, and I mean, j just getting decisions made, just getting things moved down the field as a matter of course, day to day work type of stuff, it takes forever. And a lot of that, some of that is bureaucracy, but a lot of it is because people are taking weeks to do something that could take hours to do and days to take things that could take minutes to do. Yeah. And the cumulative effect of that is, is, to, is to basically, I mean, you can almost feel it. I feel like when we're in some of these large corporations, it's like, it's like a boat anchor dragging along the bottom as the ship is trying to move forward. No, I'd agree with that. And that's the other thing we're finding is managers themselves are not as engaged as they, uh, as they could be. So when you look at that, leaders are the most engaged <laughs> in organizations right now, followed by managers. If you look at that, they call it the muddled middle, right? The middle manager. That's yeah. where the challenge is, unless you're equipping, helping uh, managers do better. In fact, what we call it at Gallup, we call it the kind of the boss to coach shift. 
how you can be, you need right. to be less of a boss and more of a yeah. coach. But it doesn't come naturally to all managers. They need a lot of help, a lot of training, and they need to be equipped to be better managers. It's not something that comes naturally. Absolutely. I mean, that that is the focus of what we do is is working on that on that group. I mean, one of our one of our clients, one of the big global banks, calls them the the permafrost layer, <laughs> which is this layer of middle management that is like frozen in this old mindset of command and control. Do as I say. Don't question authority, and 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 is resistant to evolving to the coaches that they need to become in order mm-hmm. to make their team succeed. And it's like you know, it's it's so simple. You have a team, you need a coach. You know, it's 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 not complicated. And so you really have to to engage with those folks to melt that permafrost and to give them the tools they need. And the mindset, even more important than the tools, I think, is the mindset mm-hmm. of, of being a collaborative leader that, that encourages their team to speak up, that encourages their team to engage with them, that rewards constructive criticism, constructive conflict, um, as long as it's done in a collegial and positive way, rather than refuses to be questioned, uh, you know, is dictatorial in their mindset. And... It's 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 pervasive, right? Worldwide, mm-hmm. in all sectors, in all industries, at all levels. Definitely, absolutely. Uh, this is something we're seeing across different industries, you know. And some of these critical industries, like healthcare, for instance, you know, we we kind of saw an uptick uh, recently around engagement with healthcare workers in the U.S. You can imagine, you know, if your healthcare employee is not engaged, is not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, supported by a great manager the implications are massive. So when we yeah. work with hospitals, for instance, we actually see connections between engagement or disengagement with things like mortality. Now think mm-hmm. about that. You know, the, the, the next evolution of employee engagement is employee well-being, which right. is kind of much broader in context. But, but employee well-being is not just, um, uh, you know, the physical aspects, because that's oh, where I think a lot of focus, it. right? There is an element of community. There's an element of social connections things that have really suffered. Uh, when I talked about uh, kind of well-being overall, we, uh, our CEO, John Clifton, just wrote a book called The Blind Spot. And, mm. and the idea was really to kind of highlight what leaders missed uh, because leaders are looking at the wrong metrics. Uh, they're looking at right. lagging indicators uh, of profit and, uh, and revenue. What they missed was the global rise of unhappiness. Right. So we, again, like I said, we do this in pretty much all of the world. Obviously, there are some places... On this planet where we can't do polling, just such as North Korea, <laughs> amongst others. I, well, I'm, I, I'm sure. I'm sure we would find a, a, a lot, a lot more of uh, 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 road warriors in, in uh, North and, Korea. Than undoubtedly, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think it's the global rise of unhappiness predates the pandemic, and that's important. Definitely. That is important. It's because of the pandemic. And and it sounds like from the data that you're talking about, Vibas, that. That the whole letting people work from home, bringing them back, hasn't had a massive impact on on the bottom line when it comes to employee engagement. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. So if you look at um, preferences, let's start with preferences. Like, what do people prefer now? So we got about one in ten who prefer on site. Yeah, that's a pretty low number, right? There's six yeah. in ten who actually prefer some kind of hybrid. Yeah. So yeah. hybrid is the future. 
And I think yeah. the more leaders understand, more CEOs understand that rather than pushing people back into work, you're trying to maximize the moments that they're, they're in the office. You know, that's the thing. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I work with a lot of clients where I see that they're, they're in the office and they're on Zoom meetings with somebody in the other cubicle on the other side. You know, be at home. <laughs> that's a, just be home. You know, I think yeah. you're more productive that way. So hybrid right. is the way. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, you know, I, I, I quit my job as a journalist back in 2013. So I haven't worked in an office in, in nine years. But I, I spent 20 years working in an office before that. And it was the most unproductive time of my life. I mean, I... I spent half of every day chatting with coworkers, you know, about things that didn't have anything to do with work about, you know, getting up and going to, you know, the vending machines because I didn't want to hear people yelling at each other, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and I used to always, it was funny because I, I've told this story before I wrote, I was working for the Contra Costa times in, in the San Francisco Bay area in 1999, when I wrote my first article about hybrid working. <laughs> and at the time, several several tech companies, um, most notably at the time PeopleSoft, which has since been acquired by Oracle, had PeopleSoft had just built a satellite office in the East Bay for people to to come in near their homes and and spend and and use use phones, use video conferencing use computers with the idea that you only had to go to the the corporate offices half half you know th 3 days a week and that you could work from home and then use these these satellite facilities when you needed to have video conferencing and stuff and i and it, it was a front page story in the paper and it was i talked to all sorts of experts at Stanford and Berkeley about how this is the future of work and stuff and my bosses were like, this is fabulous. This is amazing. You know, we're, we're, we're telling people about the future of work. And I said, yeah, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I would like to work from home, you know, one day <laughs> a week as, as well. And my boss looked at me and she said, are you crazy? <laughs> and, and, she, and I was like, we literally just wrote an article saying this is better, that this is the future. I said, I could do everything I do for my job from home. And part of my job requires me to be out of the office half the time anyways, because I'm a reporter. And she's like, I want to be, I want you to be where I can yell at you. And she literally <laughs> said that. And every editor I had up until the time I quit journalism, well, actually my very end of my career, I, I had, you know, written best-selling books and stuff. And so I could kind of do what I wanted. But up until then, every editor I had, I would ask, could I work from home a couple days a week? I would be much more productive. And they would be like, are you kidding? And, and, and yeah. And it's just, it's amazing because this is a job where they're used to you being out of the office for days at a time, but they still, when you're at the part where you have to type into a computer, want you to be doing it, you know, in a cubicle outside their office, which makes no sense at all. Yeah. And I uh, even would like, you know, times when I had to work from my house because I was interviewing someone up near where I live versus my office, I, my, my copy would be in hours earlier and they'd always be like, wow, you got it in so fast today and stuff like that. It's great. And I'm like, yeah, because you let me work from home. I wasn't distracted. And there's just this innate resistance to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to what we talk about, doesn't it? We've, we've evolved in technology. We've evolved in processes. We're trying to evolve ways of working, but the ways of thinking and behaving that need to accompany that evolution on one side haven't kept up. 
And we still seem to be stuck in this 80s business school, if not 60s madmen management style that people are now becoming frustrated and clearly unhappier with. And there's, there's something's got to give, and it is giving in certain organizations. We've seen quiet quitting. We've seen people loudly resigning and walking out and moving to organizations that are being more progressive. What, what do you think is the actual root cause of all this, Vivas? I mean, this, this isn't pandemic-driven. This is long-standing that's been happening for probably more than a decade or so now. No, I, I, I think so. I really think that the pandemic was more of a catalyst than anything else. This is, mm-hmm. a, this is a change or, or, or a tsunami that was just waiting to happen. Uh, and I think the pandemic just accelerated it. And I think a lot of that has to do with development and employee development. I mean, you talked about quite quitting and, and a lot of people are, are are talking about quite firing, which is essentially, you know, uh, mm. having an individual, not giving them any feedback, not giving them any coaching, not giving them any right. developing. And then in many cases, managers don't even realize that they're quite firing uh, their employees by, you know, it's called management by silence. So one of the key things we found about what drives engagement, of course, the manager does, but conversations. Uh, and when I say conversations, I don't mean just, you know, hey, do your do your job or, you know, here's the task. Yeah. It's about individualization. It's about coaching that's individualized. It's about right. focusing the individual on who they are, what their strengths are, uh, what their aspirations are. How many times do managers actually have conversations? I mean, who? the performance review is the dreaded performance review, right? It's yeah, I remember a manager once told me... Uh, you know, I'd rather have a root canal than sit in my performance evaluation. So it's 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 that has to change. But who's right. who's making that change? Ways. Who's enabling that? Because many many again, we always look upwards. Are, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we always look upwards, don't we, to these poor managers yeah. who are clearly incompetent at doing their job. But I don't see the level of training. I'm I'm ex-military. Yeah. I used to get leadership right. training every year from day one, from the minute I left initial officer training to the minute I retired. Every year I was getting some form and level you know, up to a year away to do learning and training. And you just don't see that in industry. And therefore, we, we call these managers and leaders out for being inadequate in leadership roles. But I turned around and said, well, who's, who's trained and helped these people become what they should be and what the expectation is? Because a lot of them have imposter syndrome. They're floundering around trying. They're reading up on LinkedIn and personal training. But there's no collective systematic, you know, systematic mechanism, I think, to help individuals progress as they go up through the ranks. Yeah. I, Marcus, I think the corporate world can learn a lot from the military and the armed forces because uh, uh, we always see that in terms of trust, in terms of engagement, we see, thankfully so, the armed forces actually having <laughs> higher levels. Uh, I'd be very worried if that was not the case. Uh, you know? but I, I, and I do think that when you think about who's responsible Sometimes it's HR and HR needs to do these training courses, but management and having conversations is not something that you can just sit in a classroom and, and, and get managers yeah. to, to get right. better at it. And, and I f- firmly believe that not just management, but leadership, it's through experiences. And that's what I love about uh, the military and, and how leadership is taught in the military is through experiences. Exactly. And Gallup, we call them key experiences. And that includes right. things like failure. So have you right. failed? And, and, and what did you learn from that failure? So in a lot of work I do around leadership, uh, when I work with a cohort of future leaders, I start with uh, uh, doing what I call a key experiences audit, which is essentially what are the experiences you've had? When have you failed? You know, what is the most right. difficult and most challenging assignment you've ever been given? Uh, and that tells you a lot about where to focus your energy, whether it's with managers or, or with leaders. And I'm of the firm belief that managers also need leadership training. 
this this age-old debate about leaders and managers and how they are different. Managers are are as important as leaders and as your corporate Absolutely. office you know, top honchos are. This is one of our principles that we are always hitting with our clients is that anyone in your organization who is responsible for other people or responsible for decision-making is a leader. It doesn't matter whether they're, you know, a assistant to the assistant manager on a retail floor, you know, or, or something like that. Anybody who is giving direction, making decisions is a leader, no matter how low they are on the, on the org chart. And if yeah. you don't enable them to be leaders, then you're, then you're setting yourself up to, to at best have suboptimal performance and at worst to fail. Yeah. I wrote an article in this recently where I argue that leadership development needs to be democratized, which yes, means it, it cannot, it cannot be. And I, when I do top talent work, it's very interesting. You look at the top talent pool of an organization, it's 99% top to three levels of the organization and mainly in the headquarters. What about operational mm -hmm. talent? What about exactly. management talent? You're not even looking right. at it. That is something that the pandemic has changed. You know, the social proximity bias about if I see you, I know you. It's yeah. now more about I'm, I'm, leaders say they are more they have more visibility on lower level operational talent that needs to be elevated. Yeah, well, and you know, and, and, and the other thing that, that you touched on just a second ago that is related to that that mischaracterization of 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 what constitutes a leader and what con constitutes leadership talent is when there is training for lower level managers at, at large organizations in particular, what does it tend to consist of? It tends to consist of canned online videos that they can go and watch and they can have playing while they, you know, check their sports scores or their stock prices or, or, you know, Instagram. And then they click that they've watched it and they get that box checked and nobody's Take learning box, anything. Yeah. And that concept that you raised Vivas, is something we actually did a whole show on a, on a couple months ago, democratizing training. It's, it's so important and it's, it's, it's actually, I'm, I, uh, we, we did it with the, the CEO of coaching.com actually. And that's his, that's his mission is, is working with companies to democratize training by making it easier for particularly large organizations to give, instead of giving these, these kind of worthless, you know, canned video training programs to give their managers at every level, a fixed number of hours of personal coaching, and then let them have pre-approved modalities of coaching that the company that are aligned with the company's values and, and, and aims. And then they can go on and just pick what they want and get that coaching. As you know, working with someone one-on-one -on -one for an hour, it, you know, as a coach is going to be a, a lot more valuable than, than watching a video a week for 10 years, you know, for that leader in terms yeah. of their development. 100%. 100%. Excellent. No, I agree with that. Yeah. And I think that the experience is, is, is one role. The other thing we had done at Gallup and Pioneer, and it was actually um, our late uh, chairman and CEO, Don Clifton, a uh, long time ago, came up with uh, what's called a strengths finder assessment. We call it Clifton Strengths. And, and, and that's part of a lot of the training we do with managers. And if you're not familiar with Clifton Strengths, it actually tells you what your strengths are, what mm -hmm. your top five strengths mm -hmm. are. And it's rooted in positive psychology, which is, I mean, as you know, traditionally the focus is always on weaknesses. And Don Clifton, he kind of flipped it around and said, why focus on weaknesses when I can focus on what I'm naturally right. talented at doing? So that becomes the individualization around manager training because each manager is different. Like right. my number one 
we have in Clifton Strengths, we have 34 teams. My number one team is ideation. So the kind of training I'll get might, or which will work for me is very different from, let's say, somebody who has high empathy or high right. restorative and so on. So I think individualization is the other bit that is critical to manager development. I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. That's, that's really important. I'm curious, you know, on, on this issue of, of the future of work and the, the, what models make sense, there's, there, I just read uh, a study yesterday. They, there was a trial program. You're probably familiar with it. I don't remember who ran it, run worldwide on, on switching to a four-day work week. Mm-hmm. And it was done in countries all over the world. And, and uh, the results apparently were 100% positive. There was no drop in productivity. Engagement went up. Satisfaction went up. Um, I'm curious, how do you think that all might fit into this, this whole rethinking of work as well? Yeah. And I, and I think, I don't know whether it's four days a week or five days a week, whether that should be the measure of productivity and performance. Right. It's, you know, it's quantity versus quality. It's how are you, how are you actually maximizing the moments that you have with your employees? In my opinion, it could be four days or five days, you know, and it's also when you're at on site, and I do feel that in a hybrid environment, in fact, our research shows that about three days out of five on site is actually pretty good. It actually creates a bump in engagement. So I think so that's, that's what that. Apple's I, doing and others yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I don't know whether it's four days or five days. Five days. It's the flexibility and individualization because it differs for for each employee. Uh, you know, some might say no. It's five days is when I'm I, I can distribute my workload. Some might say four. If somebody says one, then we're in trouble. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I think people are going so much into four or five and policy changes and all that. The level of individualization is just not being a focus. And that's what creates engagement. Like for me, for instance, I do a little bit of work in the morning. I have Asia clients. I have clients in Europe. So it depends on when I do my conversations. And I like the flexibility. And Gallup affords me the flexibility to manage my time around when I'm most productive and when I can drive the most client impact. Mm-hmm. That's well, more that's, important than four days or five days. Exactly, and that's the thing is, I mean, we we have all of this, we have all of this technology around us now that's designed to, you know, allow us to be connected all the time wherever we are. That that enables us to engage remotely with people all over the world, and this this whole model of a of a work week even is something that's so tied to to a century old mat model of industrial manufacturing and stuff it just yeah. it, it really i i feel like and i i think it's i'm so fascinated to see your data that that, that the pandemic didn't really start this whole whole problem um but what i think positively it is it actually finally may have started the solution to it which is forcing yeah. organizations to rethink the whole thing. Not just hybrid, but when you work, how you work, where you work, the, the whole yeah. thing. And the application of technology that we've been banging on about so much, but failed to grasp, which we've now been forced to do and proven it works. So why can't we carry on that way? And, and, and there's a great quote from, I think it was from, from Eisenhower when he was a general. It's either from Eisenhower or Patton, which was, don't tell people what to do. Don't don't tell people how how to do things. Tell them what needs to be done and let them figure it out. Yeah, and that's that. we're at yeah. a time when people have this amazing power to figure things out for themselves. Yeah, yeah, and, and a big part of that is also the demographic shift. You know, I mean, it's more and more the old notions of what 
traditional work looks like is not going to appeal to millennials. I have a, I have a Gen X daughter who's soon going to be joining the workforce. Uh, um, sorry, Gen Z daughter, not Gen X daughter. Oh, wow. Not that old. Not that old. <laughs> and, 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 uh, it's, it's interesting her, what doesn't occur to her, which occurred to me when I got my first job all those years ago was how much are you going to pay me? Uh, she's talking about purpose. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to achieve? Yeah. You know? So that requires a different mindset in terms of when to work, where to work, yeah. how to work. And we need to be open. And to stimulation that. when you're in the work. The, these right. individuals right. need a very different type of stimulus to be engaged versus, hey, I'm earning good money. And that's a mindset exactly. shift that the managers of old, managing these individuals, don't get because that's not them. So again, the that's coaching right. and learning for them to appreciate that shift in the mentality and the mindset is something that needs to happen, but clearly isn't. Well, a lot of it is about, bias. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is about quality of life and, and happiness and mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. And I know one of the things that you've looked at too is, is the global rise of unhappiness, mm -hmm. um, which is something I'd love to dive into. We, why don't we take a, a quick break right now? When we come back, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle that, that uh, unhappy topic. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So the boss, uh, before the break, we, we started talking about this rise in global unhappiness. Can you talk a little bit about what you are seeing in, in, in Gallup's research on that and what might be driving that? Yeah, like I like I mentioned earlier, it's it's just something that leaders have missed, uh, and uh, it predates the pandemic, like I said. But let, let me talk about it from the perspective of the workplace. So, yeah, I mean, obviously uh, we uh, kind of do this research around the world, and when you think about countries that are happy versus those who are not, and they're not necessarily uh, a correlation between happiness and GDP. You know, it's it's not the the richest country who necessarily have the happy, happiest uh, money can't buy you happiness. Why like are the Scandinavian countries always the highest? <laughs> I don't highest? know. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, well, I, I no offense, but I mean, I know a lot of people there and they don't seem particularly happy to me, yet they always score off the charts in terms of happiness. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, this from a cultural point of view, I always yes. kind of look at that and say, do I really get it? But because I, I can't, I don't live that life. Yeah. I don't have that social circle and so on. I think there are things that work really well like the education system, free healthcare, hello. <laughs> so yeah. I think that there, there, there yeah. are other things that do have an impact. Because when you think about happiness, it's it's a combination of different things. Yeah, Social right. connections, community connections, health and and so on. So I do think that's that's the case. And it's something that it's it's more difficult to move overall. I remember when we did this I lived ten years in Singapore. And mm -hmm. I remember when John, our CEO, when when he did write an article about how Singapore was uh, amongst the least happy. I think about that. One of the most Which again surprises countries. me because I mean, I, I know plenty of people in Singapore who are some of the happiest people I know. 
Right, right. But I think they, they kind of take, took it very seriously, Singapore, and, and they kind of said, no, we are the happiest. And then they kind of... Proved the show, yeah. You know, I, I have fantastic friends in Singapore who are very happy, is what I understand. Yeah. But, you know, it's it requires a concerted effort and a more holistic view of well-being. It's yeah. not just financial well-being. Absolutely. It's career well-being. It's social well-being. It's community well-being in some cases is spiritual well-being if you're a believer so mm-hmm. I, I think there's less focus on that and in, in the corporate world it's kind of interesting um, we started asking this question does your organization care about your well-being and this mm. is the most interesting finding we've seen it's we saw those numbers mid-20s rise up to more than 40 percent in the height of the pandemic suddenly organizations are like, we, of course we care about you, you know, yeah. with, with everything that was going on. And that number has plummeted down since. Mm-hmm. Of course it has. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's not about uh, all the talk and all the chat about, you know, we do care about you and, you know, here, take a day off and, you know, all of that. It's, it's really about, are you really focusing holistically about what an employee, not just an employee, a person, a person who happens to work in your organization wants. Because they take right. all that stress and burnout that you put on them and they take it back home. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that you need to switch to looking at as employees, as human beings and people. And that's yes, the that, shift I think organizations. That's a make. novel concept, isn't it? Just 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 say that again. We have to look at employees as human beings as human and people. Beings, you know? The fact we yeah. even have to state that as something organizations should do is appalling. That's half the yeah, problem, I mean, isn't it? That we're well, not I mean, addressing this. Blake Look at what's happening thing. to Twitter right now. I yeah. mean, I mean, yeah. there, there, there's you can't pick a example outside of you know, like you know, North Korea or Russia or someplace yeah. where a company is is so clearly and demonstrably treating its employees as fungible assets that uh, you know can be shunted and 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 shoved about you know in real time with with no regard to what they might think about things. Yeah, but Marcus, what you said, I think just the words that you use, I mean, a lot of people say, why call it human resources? Resources are expendable. So it's, it's like, why, why, why don't, why don't you call them talents? It doesn't matter what you call them, but it's, it's your attitude. It's how you treat them. It's how right. you treat them and you treat them with respect. You treat them, you value their contribution, yeah. you value their strengths. I mean, those are the things that are more important than all the talk about, you know, of course we care, you know. You know, yeah, when, things when, we're doing. <laughs> yeah, when I think about that, it's, you know, you think about your previous bosses, your previous experiences, it's how you felt when you were there. It's not what you did. It's not who you were with. It's how you felt in that environment. And often it's like, who was your best boss? What was good about them? And most people will say they cared. You know, that individual, I could tell they gave a shit. They actually cared about me, my life, my family, whatever my situation was, and they helped me grow in that position I was in. And also grew with me as I'm, because, you know, a 21-year-old millennial arriving is going to want something very different to when they're 28, to when they're 35. And if they don't see that growth opportunity in the company, then they're going to become stale or quietly quit as well. It's tough, though, because I hear you say that, Marcus. And I'm just I'm just thinking honestly about my own life when I had bosses. And my best boss was actually probably the boss that cared the least about my well-being as a person but cared immensely about hard professionally. my success professionally yeah. and would make me, you know, stay at the office till 1130 at night regularly mm-hmm. to keep polishing a story yeah. and stuff like that because he cared deeply about 
the product we were producing. And it was, it was kind of a crucible. It actually really, yeah. my health suffered and stuff, but I also yeah. did the best work I ever did in my life. Yeah. That's I a shift, isn't it? I yeah, I'm the same, well, I think we're all the same age, aren't we? Really, right. we all, we've all had that, and I enjoyed that as well. In the military, we yeah. definitely had that. But you try and apply that same leadership or style to the Gen Zs and millennials today, and you're not going to get the response that we got in the majority, right. I would say. I guess that's it. It's probably it's probably a, a moment that has passed. Yeah. But it's but 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 it still comes down to caring, whether that's yeah. caring in a good way that's or correct. not. Yeah. And, and the worst that's bosses correct. I've had are the ones who didn't care who didn't yeah, care right. about you as a person, didn't care about the product that you were producing, didn't care about whether you succeed. The worst boss I had didn't care whether the team succeeded or failed either. They were just yeah. there to, to get their paycheck and they made that abundantly clear. And that's the worst type of leader. It's interesting though, because I want to come back to something you said, Vibas, that I think is really actually kind of terrifying. So you saw this, the, this, this, this increase in feeling that my company cares about me during the pandemic, which is totally understandable because, you know, I think about, you know, neighbors of mine who, who I have a lot of neighbors who are, who are, you know, executives in the tech industry. And when the pandemic started, they, they got, you know, they were, they were so pleased with their employers because they got, not only did they get told they could work from home, but they got, you know, $10,000 to set up a home office, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, it was great and they were thrilled and they made them happy. And, and at different scales, you had that happening in a lot of big companies. But now two things are happening. Not only are companies asking people to come back to work, which, which has the pendulum has swung the other way where people are now not willing to kind of meet their, their employers halfway on that in a lot of cases. But we're also plunging into potentially one of the worst economic crises, if not the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And a lot of the things that people had before the pandemic are going to get taken away in a lot of organizations, to be honest, over the next year, mm -hmm. I would predict. And so what reason why I say what you said is scary to me is it's not, it's not, it's worse than a swing back to the perceived less caring that existed before the pandemic. It's, I feel like the pendulum is about to swing far to the other way where it's going to be like, you should be lucky you have a job, shut up and get to work, you know, type of thing. Yeah, I think with the so-called recession and, and whether that's happening or not will happen and how that will affect, keeping that aside, I, I do feel that uh, these numbers around well-being, cares about well-being, are probably going to stay the same because we've seen that trend after a really long time. Okay. Because, you know, all those promises that were made because of which that score kind of went up, those are being kind of taken away. But organizations have a huge opportunity to create what we'd call a workplace value proposition. You know, like why come to the workplace? And you have an employee value proposition. In fact, we see that a lot of top talent look at, you know, am I going to learn and I'm going to grow? But they're also looking at how I'm going to work as a big part of the value proposition. Most companies don't have a workplace value proposition. So when you think about a workplace value proposition and we work with organizations to craft a workplace value proposition, mm -hmm. it is think like, things like how you'll collaborate, how you'll communicate, how decisions are going to be made. You know, I mean, those are important because, you know, if you're in a hybrid environment, how are decisions made? How does communication yeah, right. flow? When I walk into work, what can I expect? So you can expect collaborate. You can expect workathons. You can expect that we are coming together and leaders are creating energy, you know, 
But what tends to happen, I've seen a lot of organizations, employees come back and it's a pretty normal day at work. The two days yeah. that I spend out of a week, same old, same old. I do a few meetings and, and then I go back. Now that's a huge wasted opportunity. And right. most leaders need to be out there walking the floor. Mm-hmm. When these employees, they need to be creating energy. In most cases, leaders just controlling uh, and not really creating that empowering people to do more. So that workplace value proposition needs to change. That's one of the things that I really like about Apple's model is that, as I understand it, you have to come back to the office for two days a week and then you have to have a third day where you work with your team, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. either at the office or somewhere else, but you have to work with your team the third day. And I like that because it's getting to what you're talking about, I think. It's not just, yeah, you can stay home two days a week still. It's, it's re, it, is, it is rethinking what you're doing when you're back and, and making sure that at least one of those days is this very focused thing with your, with your physical team in the same place, kind of doing yeah. that workathon type of thing that you're talking about. Yeah. I think that's- yeah. and, and, and connecting with your manager. I think that's such yeah. a huge thing. And connecting with the manager at a deeper level. With everybody. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it, it, not just kind of, that's an opportunity for a manager to really have a check-in but how yeah. things are going and focus on the well-being of the individual. What can I help you with? You know, it's not here though all the tasks that you're expected to do. That has a different place, but you know, it goes back to performance evaluation and how a lot of organizations have changed that quantitative Cartesian metric driven kind of uh, uh, performance reviews to more of a conversation, more of a qualitative. I think they've done that and we have some great clients who have done exceptionally well a very big consulting firm we worked with, uh, thousands of managers completely switched the way that they did performance reviews and changed that with strengths-based engagement, performance-focused on coaching. So all that's there. But in many cases, organizations are not doing enough. They're taking out the rating and ranking, replacing it with something more superficial, but not equipping their managers to actually have conversations. So it's well, kind of a waste. In conversations is so key. And you know, when you mentioned, I love this, workplace value propositions. One of our theses, one of the things that we talk about constantly, one of the things that we talk about in our training programs and with our clients constantly is that there are very few people who get up in the morning and want to do a bad job. People want to contribute. Most people want to contribute. They want to make a positive difference. And so I would submit that a big part of the workplace value proposition in any organization should be you will be part of the decision making your perspectives will be listened to your voice will be heard and you will be part of of the the process of determining what we do as an organization not that i'm going to abdicate my role as a leader to you but that i'm going to listen to you and i'm going to hear what you have to say because i know that you may have a better idea than i have and i think if you give people that if you listen to them and if you have conversations with them, that is a huge part of creating a real value proposition at any workplace. And that's true in business, it's true in the military, it's true in government, it's true of anywhere. People want to feel like there's a reason for them showing up for work other than just getting a paycheck. And this goes back to doesn't it? what we've talked about before is how are you enabling the engagement with, with and of your people? How are you then taking that feedback and adopting it? And this then leads into the diversity, you know, organizations, tick box diversity. The whole purpose of a diverse workforce is to get diversity of thought 
And that's where the inclusion piece comes in, diversity and inclusion. One without the other doesn't work. And if your people aren't feeling included, and if they're not, as Bryce said, being asked to provide input, to challenge, to speak up, to innovate, to be creative, then they're going to think, why am I getting out of bed? Because that's what everybody wants to do. I've never met, never met anybody who doesn't want that, doesn't want that recognition and ability to step up and stand out because that's what humans do. And that's what, well, what our best capabilities are is being creative and thinking and you know evolving. And if you're trying to do that and you're being put down or you're being stymied and you're hitting brick walls, rather than, and, and it made me smile earlier when you said it, Vibas, you said the manager should be there saying, how can I help you? How many people hear that? Because the managers themselves are so busy heads down. Good managers have nothing to do except enable their people. They have delegated, they have enabled, and their, their ability then is to float around unblocking problems, clearing the, the B-52 bomber, clearing the highway ahead or the icebreaker. And people see that. They see, hey, I've got a problem. It's fixed instantly. I raised it at the meeting today and the boss was all over it. Rather than the boss loading them up, with more stuff and offloading rather than delegating in the right way. Yeah, you're right, Marcus, and managers are the most burnt out. Uh, and one of the key reasons why they're burnt out is lack of, lack of alignment, lack of clarity on what they're supposed to do, and importantly, competing priorities because leaders are throwing a lot of stuff at them. So what do they focus yeah. on? And, and, and importantly, yeah. what are they incentivized to do? I think incentives is something we need to talk about. If you're yes. incentivized, and the, what you measure is you manage what you measure, right? And so I think <laughs> that's the other element that I, 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 and you mentioned something, Bryce, that is interesting, which is decision-making. And a lot of Gallup's research shows that 70% of decision-making is emotional, 30% uh, is rational. Where do we spend yep. most of our time as leaders? The rational element, you know? I'm stunned My, that it's 30%. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I don't 10. think I've seen 30% rational. I think 30% is what people think is rational. Yeah. <laughs> What you said about yeah. the yeah. way the world is going and uh, the, the recession potentially, that's my worry, that people yeah. will go back to mm -hmm. their old behavior and say the rational is more important than the emotional. But it's the emotional that drives the rational in many ways, right? So well, I think you need both, right? You need, yeah, you, need, you need both. And that's, I mean, this goes to the point, this is something that we've, we've talked about on, on the show before, and it's something that we talk about a lot is what's the appropriate role for artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not despite what a lot of people think, turning over decision-making to machines. Mm -hmm. That's not the real opportunity. The real opportunity is leveraging the immense analytical power and decision-making power of machines coupled with human decision-makers because you do need that emotional perspective. You do need that soft perspective, I would say, that nuanced perspective yeah. coupled with the fact that machines can see patterns and, and, and things much more clearly than any human being can. But if you simply offload decision-making to a machine, you're not, you're going to have that one dimensional decision-making. Um, so I, I think these things are really important discussions that organizations need to be having right now. And, and I'm, and that is my concern for boss. My, my concern is that a lot of good things, not just hybrid working, not just, just, you know, recognition of, 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 of these more nuanced forms of leadership, but a lot of good things are going to potentially fall by the wayside if we if we be, enter a really really difficult economic period here because because it's easier for bad leaders to simply cut and stop and retrench yeah, than it is type. to think creatively 
and heroically in some cases may be necessary about how do you know? And I, 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 I'll use an example for, from from my mentor Alan Mulally that that you've heard me talk about when we first met at, at this conference in Sing- in uh, Shanghai many years ago. During the last global financial crisis, what did he do? He maintained full investment in new R and D, new products, new development. And his his chief financial officer at Ford said, "Are you crazy?" Because he did it while passing on it on a government bailout. And the CFO said, we can't do this. We have six months operating capital. The economy in the, around the world has collapsed. There's, auto sales are plummeted to levels not seen in, in, since the Great Depression. And you want to keep investing in new technologies, new cars and stuff? If you do that, we could go out of business. And Alan's response was, right, we could. But if we don't do that, we're going to go out of business because we've been going out of business for 25 years. And I think you're going to see that type of conversation repeated in a lot of companies if we enter a serious recession here where where people, you know, the opportunity is to is to is to maintain the vision of what you're trying to do through those difficult waters. Not being reckless, not 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 paying attention, but having the courage to know that if your plan is the right plan, yes, you may need to modify it, but you you don't slam on the brakes and say, no, we're just going to do what we were doing before. Now, I think in times of change, which are surely coming, I think great leaders will invest in the emotional economy mm-hmm. uh, much more than the rational economy. And I think that investment will pay off. We know from our research at Gallup, Marcus, you pointed to that earlier, you know, there is a there is an outcome associated with great engagement of employees or customers or shareholders and you know vendors and everybody else. It's 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 that investment. But again, what gets measured, what gets incentivized? That's where leaders will focus their energy. But great leaders will understand that capitalizing on the emotional economy is what will make a difference. Great so what stuff. is one thing that you would, given all the data you've got, and I'm asking a big question from a big amount of time and data you've got here, but what is one thing that you would advise leaders to really take deep consideration of Vibas, given what we've talked about, what's coming down range, and then finding themselves in these positions that we're stepping into from tomorrow, maybe. I'd say, and it is based on our biggest finding about the 70% variance in engagement as the manager, is free your managers to be able to do what they're expected to do, which is manage people, create inspiration, coach people, and, and really be the ones who create or, or, or unleash the potential of people, you know, somewhere there. That's where the focus should be rather than policy, process, systems, cost cutting and all of that, which has its place. But if you do only that and you don't focus on your managers, you're sure to lose the long game here as far as business is concerned. Great advice. Words. Yeah. Excellent. But boss, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share these fabulous insights with us and with our with our listeners and viewers. We're going to have to have you back on because there's you guys are constantly getting more information and, and more insights. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Bryce and Marcus. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.